Hello, you're listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, Trade and Globalization Editor at The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a Senior Fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we are going to hear a story from the trenches of trade. We're going to hear from Audrey Ross. I'm Audrey Ross. I'm a logistics and customs specialist. I work at Orchard Custom Beauty. We're a private labeling company, and we do business-to-business sales with large retailers and boutique cosmetic firms. Some of our star customers are Bath & Body Works, Sephora, and Avon. Orchard Customs Beauty handles things like handbags, cosmetics, beauty accessories, some tote bags. They manufacture in eight to 10 different countries and sell to the US, Germany, China, Australia. That is a lot of logistics. We spoke to Audrey because she's living and breathing the reality of all of the disruption that this COVID-19 virus is causing. Every industry is a little bit different, but we thought it would be interesting to dive really deeply into this one. I started off by asking Audrey to walk us through the process of of ordering something and then getting it to the customer, say an eyelash curler. So how would that work? So generally, uh, we get our business in two ways. Either someone reaches out and says, you know, we want to do this program or there's, you know, kind of lines or programs that we create for them and pitch. So if someone were to reach out and say, I want, you know, 10,000 eyelash curlers, one of the best parts about working with Orchard is everything is custom. So it's, you know, we would have your your custom brand name on it. It would be custom color. So we would reach out to one of our manufacturing partners. Something like eyelash curlers are going to be made either, you know, South Korea, China, Taiwan, in those areas. And, you know, we'd start with everything from the kind of quoting and reaching out to the vendor getting the pricing settled, and then figuring out where the customer is so that we can determine, you know, how, you know, what the transportation costs are. If they're located in the U.S., for example, we have to look at tariffs. You know, there's some added tariffs depending on where you are. If you're coming into Canada, sometimes there's a free trade agreement you can kind of access. So those are the things that I kind of help the product development team factor in, either kind of adding the costs in for the transportation you know, assessing if it's going to be air shipping, if it's small enough for courier, if it's going to go by ocean. You know, we kind of look at it from the end product and walk yourself back to the beginning. So what is this going to look like on the shelves? And then factor in everything from there. Is it in a box? Is it on a counter? You know, for certain products, you know, not so much an eyelash color, but you don't want it to be tampered with. So does it need stickers? Like there's just so many things that have to be thought of to be able to to get it to market. Can you give us an idea of how long uh, that sort of process takes? So how long between, say, an order being made and when it ultimately arrives on the shelf? I, I don't think the average customer really realizes how long this process takes. So, you know, we've been working on doing what we call kind of quick to market products, but those are already like this, the quickest you can kind of get something out is kind of a three to four month turnaround. So our average product, you know, for example, here in, you know, if you're in the US and Canada, your kind of holiday season in December would be your biggest kind of shopping flurry. So if you need something for December, it has to be in stores in August and September. So it has to start being in production in March and April. 
And when you're working with, depending on the manufacturer, like if we are working on something in Asia, they have a Lunar New Year celebration. So February and January are kind of out. So then you've got to book that project possibly even as early as November of the previous year for when you want the goods. So it de- depends on the customer and their style of working or, or what they're looking for. Most, But most of your big retailers, we're talking about you know holiday in July. That's when it's getting delivered. And then you start talking about Mother's Day in September and you talk about back to school or you know, whatever the new category is, I mean, you're looking at at least six to eight months before, and that's kind of a bit tight. And it depends, like the more customized you want something, sometimes the longer it takes because you want to get it right. And it may not be available. It's something you have to innovate on the market. Are you able to talk now a little bit about trends within the sector? So so where is everything being made? Is, Is this really a China story? I think a lot of what happened, if you look kind of back how long have I been around about 15 years in this industry? If you looked at when I was first starting 15, 20 years ago, everything had started to move. So a lot of goods were being produced locally for the North American market. You saw a shift, you know, with NAFTA into production into Mexico. But a lot of companies were starting to make that overseas move to China. And, and you know, China has really facilitated being this kind of manufacturing hub. And so Even now, once you started to get into situations now with some trade disputes and tariffs, people have started moving their goods, shifting production and manufacturing to different locations. And it's one part of it is recognizing that there's kind of these tariff and and trade issues. I think another part of it is that people realize that they didn't have an agile market. So if something were to happen in China, where else can you produce? And as we've moved into COVID-19, I think a lot of people are getting that impact, you know, it's kind of right in your face that it's like, oh, wait, everything comes from there. That could be a problem. So this diversification of your supply chain and uh, having more options means you can be more agile. Now, for us, we have manufacturing, you know, we do do a lot of piece production and manufacturing in China, but then it moves somewhere else for finishing work or for formulation, especially in cosmetics. And then if you look even outside of kind of our current issues, I think a lot of people, when they're looking at climate change or environmental concerns, there's been a bit of a push to really shop local, supporting local or smaller independent businesses. So it's, it's been a, it's a very interesting time in supply chain. Absolutely. Can you explain why some of this stuff isn't made near the, the end consumer? So why aren't more cosmetics being made either say here in America or there in Canada where you are? So for us, the barrier has been the machinery used to create some of the plastic componentry. So the the parts of the lipstick or the parts of an eyeshadow palette, we just don't have that machinery here. So either we don't have that kind of sophisticated newer machinery that they do have in other places, or the cost to produce it here is significantly higher than it is in other places, either because there's no machinery or labor and the other reason I think we found was, you know, China, some uh, they really set themselves up to be very entrepreneurial and very customizable. And what we'd found, you know, especially when I was starting out sourcing, I'd ask a Canadian company, an American company, you know, oh, can we do this kind of label? We want to change the color. And it's like, oh, I don't know if we could do that, you know, or there was some hesitation on, we don't know how much that would cost, so we can't quote you. And you're like, well, if you can't give me some sort of estimate, how would I move forward with this project? It's like, 
I'm going to write you a blank check. That doesn't make sense. So I think there were some little hiccups in that way that with kind of, you know, quote unquote, traditional manufacturing, there was a way that people did things or a way that the products were developed. But in this world, if you, if you're not innovating and customizing, like that's what your customer wants. They want it to be meaningful to them. They want to have a great experience with it, but they also like, they love that personalization and, and, you know, that novelty factor too. Like I've got the latest, you know, in, in lipsticks and, and eyeshadows and eyelash curlers. So. Okay. So you just mentioned COVID-19 and, and obviously we will get back to that, but First, I wanted to ask you about 2009. So listeners will remember from our most recent episode that that is, that is the year of the, the great trade collapse. What was it like for you? So I would have been at Orchard about three years by that point and well into my role. At the time, I was doing global sourcing and some customer service. And we went from doing a ton a ton of gift with purchases. Everything was a gift with purchase. Like every brand, salon brands, hair care, they're doing super special packing. They're doing, you know, elaborate, you know, boxing and, and, and that. And then also gifts. So everybody was doing a cosmetic bag with their shampoo or, you know, a lipstick carrier with their lipstick. And we, by 2008, that just dropped. Every single brand just did, if they were doing any sort of discount, it would be, you could get this mini hairspray with your shampoo. So it was everything kind of moved back in-house. And so people weren't looking at those specialty items or those accessory products. And then we saw, saw a big shift to impulse buys. So we saw weird kind of collaborations where shoe companies, like if you were buying, you know, a lot of shoe brand shoe stores would start selling nail polish at the cash. So all of a sudden, these random shoe brands started calling us like, can you do nail polish? And it's like, okay, (laughs) sure. You know, the fun thing about nail polish is it's a dangerous good. So it's actually not as easy to do as you (laughs) would expect. But it became these little counter, like they do these counter fish bowls. And, you know, so customers could just grab something, you know, the three to five dollar range. And still somehow these brands are trying to just make any kind of sale. Did you see overall trade volumes go down? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Because it was everyone moved to a focus like this austerity, right? So you'd see that sort of in regular economics for your day-to-day life, but you'd also start to see that at companies where it was, where can they scale back? Where can we assess what we've been spending on? And now what is this, what is kind of essential spending? So even things like, you know, I'm sure salespeople had to go through like, why are you taking this person out to lunch? And you know, are we really going to send them these samples? Do they need these extra samples? The courier. So I think everybody really did that list of what am I spending on? And it's, and I think it's actually something that people are doing now too. We're kind of assessing, do you still need this project? Do you still need it delivered by air or can you look at something different? So certainly in, in 2008 and 2009, we saw this kind of, that austerity just really reflected through every aspect of, of our business and our lives. Before we talk about COVID-19. Can I just ask one follow-up question about, about something you just mentioned? You said that nail polish was a dangerous good. Could you elaborate a bit on that? So nail polish is definitely a dangerous good. Generally dangerous goods are anything that is hazardous to humans and needs extra health and safety requirements. We refer to these as, you know, having controlled conditions, especially for their transport and their storage. 
before it gets to the end user. These are products that need extra testing, especially when you're doing air transit. There's lots of special requirements for moving goods by air. We also have to look at special labeling so that we're able to warn the transport companies or whoever's kind of handling the goods. You know, so something to consider when we're moving the goods. I mean, there's the higher insurance costs and then also the transportation costs because the risk is greater. So on average, we usually expect to pay about 30% more than your usual transportation costs. So that sounds like a lot to have to deal with. (laughs) It makes it interesting. And what we found to work around these challenges, like to work around the nail polish challenge, we had to, we had to localize. So we found nail polish manufacturers in Canada, in, you know, in, in the US, in Australia, in Europe, and then we just ship kind of domestically. And so that kind of takes it, you know, takes some of the stress out of that situation. Okay. So localization of dangerous goods are one workaround. Are there any other challenges when it comes to those types of hazardous goods that you can tell us about? Absolutely. So about, I guess, two or three, three or four years ago, there was an explosion at the port of Tianjin in China. And so it was a large explosion and it was caused by a number of kind of vats of chemicals and a boat and it's a port. So there was a warehouse fire and a lot of damage. And so, of course, you know, a country will relook at the regulations that they have in place. And one of the things that stemmed from that is we've seen increased regulations or increased testing on our products and also just kind of an agitation around what constitutes a dangerous good. So I get hassled about lipsticks and eyeshadows when I'm trying to airship them because it's like, it's a dangerous good. And you're like, no, it's not a dangerous good. And it's like, prove it. So we have to go through all of these extra testing and provide reports and that can add, you know, even more extra costs. And we also have to create material safety data sheets for products that there's, you know, there's really no safe handling or for lipstick. So there's really no need in the kind of general scheme of things for why you would need that. But, you know, all of a sudden in the last four years, we sort of had to keep increasing, you know, what our evidence is that this is not dangerous. And I'm like, you can put it on your face, but then nail polish you put on your nails. So I really don't have, <laughs> I really don't have, I guess, a leg to stand on there. How have you responded to that sort of technical barrier to trade? So we've actually had to change some of our routes in Asia. We found that Shenzhen is just so much more stringent on these this testing burden. They've even done testing. It's now per shade. So if I show up at the airport with six lipsticks, they're going to want to test for each shade of lipstick. And each test could be $50 to $150, depending on you know how last minute you're trying to get these tested and how quickly you want to get them on board. So we've seen that really heavily on air shipments and really not so much for sea. But of course, you know, the dangers are greater. We found that Hong Kong is sort of, they're the most, not to say that they're loose, but they're the loosest on that standard. So a lot of goods now, instead of going out of Shanghai or Shenzhen or Ningbo, we're sending them, we're trucking them down to Hong Kong to go out of the airport there. Um, it's just kind of less, sort of less expensive in the grand, grand scheme of things. So now let's move away from these regulatory barriers to trade and and talk a bit about COVID-19. So what's been your experience in dealing with this crisis so far? So it started with the extended Lunar New Year. So that's something you're accustomed to, but it just got extended. And so immediately we're seeing, you know, our manufacturing partners not go back to work, which meant that we can't get samples. 
There were orders that were kind of sort of finished and maybe just needed an inspection or just another phase before they could load onto containers. And then as they, as you know, our partners started going back to work, it became vessels weren't available. So we had, you know, the industries responded with a lot of blank sailings because the goods weren't there. So it became just trying to find a vessel. And then, you know, we're looking at some of the projects that were extended and with our due dates or customers had things that they wanted in stores, we had to start look at, looking at air shipping. Initially, there were sort of, you just expected it to go kind of back to normal, but then, you know, Air Canada stopped doing flights, you know, and then you saw a kind of cascade of airlines not doing flights. And, and what people don't realize is that most of the cargo actually goes on passenger flights. We don't really use dedicated cargo planes. They're very expensive and we're all, we don't want to pay for that. So when you start losing those flights, you lose the capacity um, and that started hitting. So, you know, you couldn't get goods to North America or it was harder. It starts to get more expensive. And every week the price is kind of like 30 cents more, 30 cents more, 30 cents more. Last week, it's like $10 a kilogram. It was crazy. And then we started to have customers in Europe say like, we're, we're you know, closing our warehouses or we're going to reduce hours. So then we had deliveries and it's like, okay, we're going to put it on storage. But we also had deliveries that were finishing up in Asia. And it's like, are you even going to put it on the boat? And how do you make that call? Because if they're closing down and at the time, you know, we were all very optimistic, like, oh, it's like 14 days, 21 days, you know, a boat to from, you know, Shanghai to Rotterdam is six, almost six weeks, five weeks. So you're like, oh, we'll put it on the boat anyways. And then as the weeks go by, it's like, well, now it's coming to the port and they're still closed. Where am I going to put it? You know, and then we've seen the same as, as you know, it's moved through to North America. Customers are closed, different states, different rules. So yeah, some some stuff we're kind of be able to reroute, some stuff we have to store. And then again, the question comes up now, as things are kind of getting ready at our partners, do we ship it? Do we hold it? Do we wait? So it's it's active, it's ever-changing, and, and it's dynamic. <laughs> right, right. How do you think this is going to compare to, to 2009? It's more, it's almost more of a challenge. It's more of a challenge in 2009 in, in the sense that you didn't have to physical distance. And that there were, I think in 2009, there were some very specific sectors and specific businesses that were, were very affected. And the COVID-19 difference is everyone is affected on some level. You know, so we're able to kind of keep working, but we're working from home, right? So that that changes how we do our business. It changes, you can't, you know, you can't have sales interactions in the same way that you used to. You, you know, you're you're working maybe with reduced staff and employees at certain manufacturers or at certain warehouses. So so the financial crisis, I mean, that that had a, a massive effect and a lot of people were affected because certain businesses completely closed down, but other businesses sprang up and you could go and work for them. So I think this is, is such a unique, a unique situation for us that just, you know, what's the word of the day? Unprecedented. Okay. Final question. Are you seeing orders come in for, for high fashion face masks? <laughs> <laughs> if we did that, we probably would blinged out hand sanitizer has certainly been asked for. Like everybody now wants to do their own branded hand sanitizer. So, so that, yeah, everyone. And it's hard. And obviously you can't get it right now because it's, you know, everyone's turned to, it's essential. It's going to essential 
things. But I, you know, once it's not going to essential people, yeah, 20 holiday 2020 or into 2021, it's like each brand will have their own personalized hand sanitizer for sure. Wait, wait, wait. Is is hand sanitizer a dangerous good? <laughs> it's another one, yes. High, high alcohol content, right? The the cleaner, the more germs and bacteria you want to kill, the higher the alcohol content is going to be. So absolutely hand sanitizer is going to be on the dangerous goods list. It's also an essential good, so it's getting the extra special regulatory review treatment. So it's, you know, as much as it's going to be your next best product, it's certainly something you're going to have to investigate uh, how you're going to ship. Something to look forward to. <laughs> it's always exciting. Audrey, thank you so, so much for coming on Trade Talks. Thanks so much for having me, Samaya and Chad. This was really exciting. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks from me to Audrey Ross of Orchard International. And thanks as always to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because shipping two shades of lipstick is better than one. <laughs>